Welcome to the Public Morality. At a time when reports of police misconduct dominate the news cycle nationally, Michael Hayes, in his latest book, The Secret Files, Bill de Blasio, the NYPD, and the Broken Promises of Police Reform, has uncovered a major story about how the NYPD was not only turning a blind eye to police misconduct, but in some cases, even sanctioning it. Hayes, a veteran journalist, has reported on the policies and practices of police departments across America. His work has appeared in a variety of outlets, including ProPublica, BuzzFeed, HuffPost, CNN, and WNYC. Michael Hayes, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me on, Byron. I would like to begin by just having you take us through your journey that led to this text. Sure. So the book is titled uh, The Secret Files, Bill de Blasio, the NYPD, and Broken Promises of Police Reform. It focuses on de Blasio's time as mayor and specifically on the years after Eric Garner was killed in 2014 up until Mayor de Blasio left office last year. After Garner was killed in July 2014, police accountability in New York City really became the issue for the de Blasio administration. And at the time I was working at BuzzFeed News as a reporter covering policing, crime, and other issues like that. Uh, and, and police accountability in New York City really became the issue. This happened in no small part because the mayor himself said that uh, they would use the Eric Garner tragedy to transform the NYPD into a department that was more transparent and accountable to New Yorkers. I focus primarily in my book on what became the major fight over police reform in NYC during these years, how to reform and improve the NYPD's police disciplinary process and how the department policed its own. What we found when I was working as a reporter is because of politics and the awesome power of the NYPD, the city fell short. And in the book, I talk about how they continue to do so when it comes to holding police who commit egregious misconduct fully accountable for their actions. If we use the iceberg scenario where 20% is revealed above the surface, and let us say that on the surface, that 20% looks similar. It's composed of, uh, let's say, Black Lives Matter protests, or Garner, which you mentioned, New York City stop and frisk. That's the 20% we see. Uh, Specific to your research, what does that remaining 80% indicate? I think that's a great analogy, Byron, because you know, to take your analogy uh, with the 20% being what is in the public and covered by the media, a lot of what my reporting focused on uh, in the book, uh, if you take just the secret files, which refers to these 2,000 police disciplinary records, which revealed about 300 officers at the NYPD who had committed egregious fireable offenses and remained on the force. That was all secret. So that's all part of the 80% of the iceberg that's below the surface. And 
I think um, when we're talking about policing at big city police departments at the NYPD, to say that 20% is out in the open like that would be incredibly generous, even today after there's been a bunch of reforms to try to make uh, police more accountable and police misconduct uh, a more transparent thing. It, it seems, uh, at least from my perspective, that part of the challenge in any discussion about law enforcement is that the conversation usually rests on a binary terrain. So to uncover some things unfavorable to law enforcement renders one soft on crime, but at the versus um, uh, the sort of you know I support police and therefore I'm I'm you know I'm I'm a you know, tough on crime, law enforcement. How much um, did you encounter of that type of binary thinking in your research? So I would count police discipline and transparency around police discipline as sort of outside of that norm. I use the inarticulate sort of there because, yeah, there's definitely... A lot of binary thinking on this issue. But when you're asking what I encountered, I encountered a lot of people, uh, a lot of people within law enforcement, cops of all shapes and sizes, all ranks up to the highest levels who were very pro-transparency. They're thinking on it being, we would like more information to be out there to support our argument that it's, quote, a few bad apples committing all the police misconduct. Now, I would not personally say that I agree with that argument that it's only a few. Like I just told you a few minutes ago, some reporting I did back in 2018 revealed that about 300 officers at the NYPD had committed uh, fireable offenses and remained on the force based on the documents that we found. 300 is more than a few. But to that point, I think there is some positive thinking within law enforcement that let's put this stuff out there for that reason. And also, that's something you might hear from the more administrative types, from the cops on the beat. They're also pro-transparency for the sheer reason they just don't want bad cops standing next to them, riding along with them in the car, making them look bad. And I, I can totally understand that. I think in any industry that you're in, you don't want your colleagues to be doing something that might reflect badly on you. So to say that there are issues with uh, binary issues around, like you say, if you reveal something damaging about law enforcement, you're viewed as soft on crime. Those problems certainly persist. However, I, I think in the realm of police discipline, there are some, some, some sort of cracks in that facade that are happening, have happened and continue to happen today. While we're at it, explain uh, New York's stop and frisk policy, because that seemed to be really at the crux of, of some of what got your reporting started. Sure. So stop and frisk is certainly 
heavily related to what I write about in my book and uh, specifically tied to Bill de Blasio. It's the issue that he rode into the mayor's office on. He said that he would be the mayor that would end stop and frisk in New York City. This came after um, some years of just absolutely skyrocketing use of stop and frisk, upwards of 700 people a year in the city being stopped, mostly young black and brown men, and very little coming from that type of enforcement in a trial that evaluated the effectiveness of the NYPD's stop and frisk policy in academic from Columbia University revealed that he reviewed hundreds of that over over a, a million stops and found that guns and and other uh enforceable criminal behavior was found less than 0.1%, something like that. So yes, yeah, stop and frisk was the hottest topic, hottest public safety topic as de Blasio was coming into office. To his credit, he did do some good work to tamp down stop and frisk. But to be fair, it had really, really been limited by the Bloomberg administration before in response to this huge uproar within the city or how the NYPD was enforcing it. It's a policy that started roughly around 2002. Numbers I looked at, 2011, you had 685,000 individuals were detained under stop and frisk with 88% resulting in absolutely no conviction whatsoever. That's 603,000 people where there was, there was no conviction. And even though the numbers are larger, that percentage was pretty much in that area um, throughout the life of stop and frisk. What was the rationale over those years to maintain that policy? So th thanks for referencing that stat. I believe that 2011 was when it, it, it hit its peak. And the rationale from within the police department was we need to do this to be able to get illegal guns off the street. And it's interesting that it was happening during these years in such an aggressive fashion when crime was at a considerable low point compared to the heights that it reached in New York City in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And it's it's no surprise that it, it really ended up as a disaster. I cited the complete lack of guns that were recovered due to the enforcement policy. But what you just cited there, Byron, the 88% the resulting in no conviction whatsoever. That that just speaks even louder volumes about how poorly this was done. Unfortunately, with recent spikes in crime in cities like New York, you have people in an uninspired way calling to bring stop and frisk back. Now, as you as you mentioned earlier, uh, De Basio runs largely on, on, on a liberal orthodox orthodoxy's mayor. 
Uh, he opposed, he was clearly opposed to stop and frisk, and and as you referenced, he 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 did some some good work toward ending stop and frisk. Um, but what happened then? Talk about after after DeBrazo makes those changes. What happened? So just to, to get a little more granular with it, I think when I say when I say good work done by De Blasio, I'm thinking specifically of something he did very early on after he became mayor. Within a month of uh, taking over for Mayor Bloomberg, he dropped the appeal in the big stop and frisk case in New York. The case was under an appeal largely driven by the police unions and Mayor Bloomberg during his uh up to his last day in office, maintained that he would he would uh, continue to 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 fight that appeal um, by by fight that appeal. I mean, I mean, use the city's law department to continue to appeal the case they lost in court, so that reforms that have been had been ordered could not take effect. De Blasio came in and immediately dropped that appeal, and it allowed reforms to take effect in a monitor to come in and more accountability to start to happen. And that sort of closes the chapter on that era of stop and frisk in New York. And I think, but, but I, I think policing would become a, a, a much bigger issue for the Blasio administration after Eric Garner got killed just less than seven months later in July. Who is Ed Mullins? Ed Mullins is the former head of the Sergeant's Benevolent Association, a very powerful police union in New York City. It's not the biggest police union in New York City. That would be the, the, the PBA. But uh, Mr. Mullins, during his time as as head of that union was probably the most outspoken police union leader in the city even though he was just head of the sergeants he didn't lead the rank and file police officers became uh very well known for traveling and 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 speaking in 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 hard right-wing circles on behalf of the police and got himself into a little bit of trouble, which I, I, I write about in the book. He was charged with uh, embezzling many, many thousands of dollars from his his union. He's recently pled guilty to, the, to those charges in federal court and and along the way was also forced to resign from the police department. You also wrote that during the de Blasio years, you saw law enforcement spending large amounts of money uh, lobbying the state legislature in Albany. So essentially, um, which I think is part of the, the, the ethos of your book, you have two political entities going tete-a-tete, the mayor's office and law enforcement, and sort of the people, if you will, are to some degree on the sidelines. Talk about that, if you would, that that uh, atmosphere. That's an interesting, interesting way to describe it. The police unions remain extremely powerful in Albany. The 
issue that I focus on in the book, uh, Police Discipline and with the legislature, Civil Rights Law 50A, which was a 40-year law in New York that kept police disciplinary records secret, they basically wrote that law back in the early 70s and were able to push it through the legislature and keep it intact through the early 2000s up until uh, 2020 when it finally got repealed and it, that that stands as a as a huge example of of the power of of police lobbying and 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 their influence not only with uh republicans on the right which they personally and professionally tend to align with more but also more conservative democrats within the new york state legislature Prior to coming into office, did did de Blasio show any real interest in law enforcement, or is this something that, um, being mayor, he was just sort of swept into it? How how did that come about? So I write about in the book how prior to him becoming mayor, no one would say he showed a deep interest in it. His uh, biggest job right before he became mayor was as New York City's public advocate. And during that time, he did speak out against the police on occasion. He he did, after several police killings that happened in 2012 during his time as public advocate, he did call for swift justice for the families. And as a city council member, he pushed a nascent proposal to expand the Civilian Complaint Review Board, known as the CCRB, the, the outside watchdog agency that handles discipline of the NYPD. De Blasio had a bill to expand their budget that he was a big sponsor of when he was in the city council. And that, that's kind of it. For, for Bill de Blasio and, and big public safety issues before he becomes mayor. And, and, and I really think it was the, the Eric Garner incident coupled with uh, two officers being shot, murdered in cold blood by a, a, a mentally unwell individual only a few months after, after that happened, after the Garner incident that really pushed policing and, and public safety to the forefront of what it was he was going to have to deal with during his time as mayor. Well, let, let, since you referenced both of those, let, let, let's, uh, let's jump to that right now. Uh, first of all, uh, ref refresh our memories because it's hard to believe, but it's been almost nine years ago since Eric Garner was, was killed. First of all, let's talk about the uh, Eric, the Eric Garner case, and then we'll go to the officers, Ramos and Lou, after that. Go ahead. Sure. So uh, er Eric Garner was killed July 2014. He was appointed chokehold by former NYPD officer Daniel Pantaleo. Mr. Pantaleo remained on the force for about six years after that, before he was ultimately fired. 
And it's interesting. I when I was a reporter at BuzzFeed back in 2014 when this happened, I was experiencing what happened with Eric. It was the biggest story in the country the week it happened, and for some time after that, uh, particularly because of the large protests that erupted in New York City and around the country right after that. And I can remember at the time experiencing that killing and and specifically i mean watching the videos of it kind of in peace mail you know uh there were multiple videos of, of of what happened to mr garner and didn't really watch the collective footage there's over as i write about in the book there's over 15 minutes of him lying on the street in Staten Island that you can view with your very own eyes if you go on YouTube today. And I had never watched that complete footage uh, until I, I, I was working on this book and happened to, at the time I was, I was, I was watching the, the, the watching the video and, 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 and writing about it for the book, the Garner video. I was also covering the tr criminal trial of, uh, Derek Chauvin in, in Minneapolis, the officer who killed George Floyd, another case, obviously, where there's just an unbelievable amount of video of what happened. And it really occurred to me for the first time, and, and, and this is 2020, 2021, so six years after Eric died, just how, how, how similar it, it, it was what happened to him compared to what happened to happened to George Floyd. One similarity that, that really stays with me is the lack of urgency and response from law enforcement on the ground standing by as these tragedies are unfolding. And as bystanders, people around are asking the cops, what's going on? Why aren't you helping this person? So for me, that's uh, that was really a, a kind of stark experience that I had revisiting the Garner case um, when I was doing this book. Now that, that that's in July, so then let's let's jump forward to December, and then you have the murder of officers uh, Ramos and Lou, and and how did that impact the city? What was the climate then in lieu of in the backdrop of uh, Eric Garner being uh, murdered? So then that that's a that's an interesting way to ask it, an interesting way to put it, the, the climate in the, the the backdrop of the city in the months leading up to the murders of Officer Lou and Ramos, what you saw in the streets or what we'll remember seeing in the streets is tens of thousands of protesters out calling for justice for Eric Garner, calling for Officer Pantaleo to be fired, just the, the 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 same sort of mass uprising that you saw after George Floyd was killed in 2020. A similar thing, although at the same time an entirely different thing that sticks with me when you talk about the climate and what was going on in the city after officers Ramos and Lou are killed, is instead of off uh, instead of civilians people in the street protesting you had officers in 
from the NYPD in, in blue uniforms in the street protesting on multiple occasions, specifically tied to the two funerals of the officers who were who were murdered. Thousands of officers turned their backs on Mayor de Blasio at the uh, at least insistence, if not instruction, of the police union at the time. So it really stands out as those murders really stand as an, as the example of the rift between the de Blasio administration and the NYPD police unions and 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 a lot of the rank and file at that time. Would it be fair to suggest that? Just the notion uh, of stop and frisk, whether intentionally or unintentionally, was an attempt to transfer policing in certain areas of the city from its traditional role of law enforcement to one of crime prevention. Was that sort of uh, part of its motivation, you think? It certainly is a form of what is sometimes referred to as proactive policing. Now, the NYPD, any major law enforcement organization would stop me right there and say, now, hold on, we don't stop anybody unless we suspect criminal activity. However, well, I'll go back again, Byron, to the statistic you cited, 88% in 2011 alone when there were close to 700,000 stops in New York City, 88% resulted in, in no conviction. That tells me that a lot of people were being stopped when they weren't in the process of committing a crime. So yeah, the numbers speak for themselves that, that this was a transformation to do something in a proactive manner to I guess with the best intentions, if we're assuming the best intentions to try to get ahead of, of crime as opposed to being reactive to it, which is what police say is how they operate. They respond to crime. They don't, they don't go out looking for it. One gets the sense very early on in your text, um, that there's an open tension between police departments and, and, and Mayor de Blasio's office. But, but you also point out that this tension was not created in doing de Blasio's term, that it has a longer shelf life, a longer history. Talk about that history between the police department and, and the mayor, a certain mayor's office, certain mayor's administrations, I should say. Sure. So yeah, in in New, York, in New York City, it goes back to the beginning of policing back in the 1840s. And the New Yorkers of the mid 19th century were not that thrilled when the city wanted to establish a police department and to have officers in the streets enforcing the laws. They had just got done dealing with a British occupation, and it sounded like kind of similar to what they had just gone through. Fast forward 100 plus years later, the tension between 
the mayor's office, city officials, and the police, that is sort of the more modern example of, of, of that of that tension. And you're right, de Blasio did not invent this. Mayor Bloomberg, who was uh, very pro-law enforcement, he used to say, I have the seven, seventh largest military in the world backing me up. I mean, he's referring to, of course, the NYPD. And he dealt with quite a bit of, of, of tension and pushback from the police unions during his time. But but I would say if you if you look at a handful of New York City's past mayors, nobody had a harder time dealing with the police than Bill de Blasio. Would it be fair to say that that, that uh, the difficult time that Mayor de Blasio had in some respects was an extension of the difficult time that Mayor Dinkins had as sandwiched between um, prior to the emergence of Rudy Giuliani. Absolutely, and it's it's interesting as I write about in the book and as uh, anyone who's followed Bill de Blasio closely knows that he was a, a, a part of the Dinkins administration, very, worked very closely with Mayor Dinkins, considered him uh, a, a bit of a mentor, probably owes quite a bit to Mayor Dinkins for his uh, personal rise in New York City politics. And uh, Mayor Dinkins, the New York City's first Black mayor, there was a, 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 a sinister element that Mayor de Blasio didn't have, have to deal with in terms of, of racism being directed at him from the largely white uh, NYPD rank and file and, and even more overwhelmingly white and male uh, police union leadership. Now, according to your reporting, as of 2018, hundreds of officers uh, with uh, severe misconduct charges remained on the force. And you alluded to this earlier, but I'd like for you to talk about what what are some of those charges that ha that have sort of been pushed to the side, if you will, that allow officers to to continue to serve. It's really everything ba bad that you can imagine, heinous beings of of people, but a, a category of misconduct that may seem less egregious than say physical violence on the surface, but is in a lot of people's minds just as bad is lying. When we were doing that initial reporting on those 2000 disciplinary records that we obtained at Buzzfeed, I believe we found close to a couple hundred instances of officers lying who had been disciplined and allowed to stay on the force. And this is everything from lying in official police document to lying in court, which would get somebody, some officers put on these lists by district attorneys, adverse credibility lists they're called. It's really just a list of cops that lie in court, uh, lists that would be distributed around uh, prosecutors' offices recommending that they don't call these cops to testify in court because 
of their impeachable histories. Now, one of the reasons I bring up officers who lied and were disciplined for it, who remained on the force, is if you look at the NYPD ham handbook, there the the NYPD patrol guide, as it's called, it's really the NYPD Bible in a sense. That book, that document outlines all of its disciplinary policies and practices. And, and, and officers found guilty of lying are supposed to be fired from the NYPD. It's right there in black and white. It couldn't be clearer. It was very clear and easy for me as a layperson to understand when I first learned about this back in 2018. So it was really shocking to see that, you know, more than 100, close to 200 officers who had been not just accused, but found guilty internally by their own department and had a documented history of being untruthful were allowed to keep their jobs. Instead of getting fired, they might lose a few vacation days. You also cited that in some examples, correct me if I'm wrong on this, that uh, even records were uh, expunged. Uh, talk about that. Did I get that right? Or... Are you are you referring, Byron, to, to records that I found missing from the NYPD? Yes, yes, yes I'm sorry. Yes, 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 yes. Sure. So uh, uh, just to, to take you through that, um, what I found. So when I when I set out to do the book, The Secret Files, in in around 2020 it was a couple years after i had done this initial reporting on the nypd disciplinary system and in that time a ton had changed in the city of new york and the state of new york uh police civil rights law 50a that i referenced earlier had been repealed and the new law of the land was that police disciplinary records could now be made public and after that happened, Mayor de Blasio, who, who did not support the repeal, but came around and supported it after the fact, said that the NYPD was going to do something historic and put out all of its disciplinary records for all of its active officers. They were going to literally launch an online database with all of this information, and which sounded really great. It sounded like Wow, in 2018, we published a database with 2,000 records for roughly 1,800 officers. Now, just two years later, we're going to get a database from the NYPD itself for 35,000 officers. Well, when I started looking into what they published uh, while reporting the book, I was able to pretty easily find over a hundred examples of really egregious misconduct that was missing from those records, included dozens of instances of lying, which I was just talking about how serious of a charge the NYPD considers that. Uh, other examples I, I include in the book, an officer who stomped on a person in custody's head while they were being held down by a another officer, an officer who was put on probation after he threatened to 
kill his wife. Uh, another officer who the NYPD literally said, quote, defrauded the department in working to cover up the heinous beating of a store clerk by a man who had NYPD connections. These are just some examples of the over 100 that I found that were missing from their database. And I should note, I'm not a data science, data, data scientist. I was working off my own Excel spreadsheets and, and, and spent many hours, days, months comparing what I knew to be public thanks to the database that we published with BuzzFeed back in 2018 to what the NYPD actually made public after the repeal of 50A. And even with my rudimentary skills, I was able to find all of these missing records. I, I wonder what somebody who's a really savvy data analyst could do if they if they looked at what's online and, and, and what's missing. What was the police secrecy law? So the police secrecy law is, um, it, it's, uh, so just to give you the full context, it's, it's uh, commonly referred to as 50A. It was known as civil rights law, 50A. Um, so yeah, just to give you the full context, 50A was a civil rights law passed back in the 1970s in New York that made all personnel records of law enforcement, including their disciplinary records, secret. The one big caveat being that in court, a judge could decide to make those records available to a person who was, say, suing the police if they felt it was relevant to the case. Civil Rights Law 50A's proponents said the point of 50A was to prevent the public from going on, quote, fishing expeditions, where they were digging into officers' backgrounds, finding damaging stuff about them, and embarrassing them in public or in court. Uh, and that law, as I said before, stood for more than 40 years in the state of New York. After 58 was repealed in 2020, the NYPD committed to publishing its own database of misconduct records, like I, like I said before. To be clear, they only agreed to do this after law enforcement unions lost multiple lawsuits that fought to keep the records secret. But in, in the lead up to the publication of this database, Mayor de Blasio said that what the NYPD intended to re release online would be transformational. And when I looked at what they published a year later, like I was saying before, there was a lot missing. So where would you say that um, reform efforts stand right now in the present moment? That's a really good question. I would say that despite what a lot of the most vocal public officials in New York say, thinking of one in particular, Mayor Eric Adams, who doesn't seem to have much interest in police reform. I believe that the reform effort, the, 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 the sort of, of group that has been built up 
during the years remains very strong and if at, at, at any moment could coalesce around an issue and it might take years like it did with police secrecy law, civil rights law 50A to get something that they believe needs to be changed, changed. But I, I, I still think it remains strong. I know that a lot of people like to say that things have gotten more conservative, this liberal movement towards police reform it, it, it is over, but you know, I, I still talk to a lot of people who, who are very well organized and, and, and could certainly get something done. Well, your book is framed in the context of, of, of the mayor's office versus the police department. To sort of allude to earlier, it, it's, it seems, at least to me, and my takeaway from your text is that the real victims are, are the people of New York. And say more about that, if you would. Sure. Well, uh, to provide some concrete data to, to support what you're feeling there, Byron, every year, New York City taxpayers put the bill for roughly $200 million in settlement payments to people who have brought civil rights claims against the NYPD. During the de Blasio administration, the city paid out well over a billion dollars to cover for lawsuits that were brought against the NYPD for everything from police killings to just your 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 run-of-the-mill false arrest where somebody spends a night in jail who shouldn't have. So yeah, it's never the police department or the police officers themselves that that have to pay when when we're talking about these monetary settlements. It's always uh, the people of New York that have to that have to foot the bill. And finally, uh, while well, we still have you here, um, any thoughts on the uh, most recent high-profile incident? I'm speaking, of course, the, the death of uh, Tyree Nichols, though it was in Memphis. I, I wonder if you had any thoughts related to your work uh, in New York, any, any feelings about that? Yeah, thanks so much for asking me about that. Uh, I do have thoughts uh, <laughs> related to my work, which I'm sure won't surprise you. And um, uh, it, it, I think it's good we're talking roughly a week after everything came out. The, vi the video was witnessed by everyone around the world, the indefensible actions of those officers, and they, they, they've been, been fired. Two things that immediately jumped out to me in, in, the, in, in my book, The Secret Files, I, I, I focus on the police disciplinary process and my immediate thought was when i when i heard about these five officers who were involved in the beating of tyree nichols and 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 that they were fired was i i wonder what their disciplinary histories are if they have a, a records of misconduct and as we uh, sit here today the 
Memphis Police Department hasn't put anything out. I know that journalists are working hard to try to figure out if any of these officers had a history of misconduct. It certainly wouldn't surprise me if, if, if any did. After seeing what happened, those officers, when they, when they, when they beat that young man to death, they, they were wearing body cameras and they knew that what they were doing was going to be viewed in at least some capacity for, for, for someone like that to be able to do that. It, I, I, I really wonder what, what their history, their professional histories are within the, the police department. So I hope that something comes out about, about that. Another thing, uh, that relates to my work and, and this story. And again, um, really happy we're talking today and, 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 and not right after it happened. Uh, saw a story earlier today that the initial police report um, about the Tyree Nichols incident was wrong. There was no mention of the officers beating him in the initial police report and i wasn't the least bit shocked to learn that one reason being in, in in my book i i i write about a handful of police killings that happened in new york and in every instance the initial police report and some of the initial media reporting about what happened was wrong one really stark example that uh, we're, we're coming up on the 11th anniversary of this incident, the killing of Ramarley Graham in the Bronx in, in, in 2011, officers followed him home from a bodega, kicked in his door and shot him in his bathroom in front of his grandmother and, and six-year-old younger brother. They, they thought that he had a gun on him. It turned out that they're, no gun was was ever found, but in 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 that case, the initial police report said that Ramarley Graham struggled with the officer who shot him, and that was a a bald faced lie. Three days after Mr. Graham was killed in 2011, the commissioner of the NYPD at the time, Ray Kelly, came out and and said that that never happened and interestingly enough another report another police report that was that was written about this th this case in 2011 i think about a month after marley graham was killed this second police report also said that he struggled with the officer who shot him so you have the members of the nypd putting pen to paper in an official record saying that this person who was killed was fighting our officers after the, the commissioner of the police department has come out and said, no, that is not what happened. So that really, it stands as one parallel example I write about in the book. One, where, where these two cases dovetail, Kyrie Nichols and, and Marley Graham, we're finding out about a week after uh, the, the video was revealed and the officers were fired in the Tyree Nichols case that the initial reports put out by the police were wrong. In the case of Marley Graham, the family didn't find out about these false reports 
until years after it happened, they had this new NYPD to get their hands on these documents to know that they had been fabricating reports. Well, Michael Hayes, I wanna thank you so much for joining us today uh, on the Pomical Rally and thank you for this wonderful reporting, very, very, very informative. Thank you so much, sir. No problem, thanks for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app, Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.